Today we're going to continue on in our new series through the book of 1 Samuel. And uh, if you missed last week, I do want to encourage you to go to our website or go to our podcast and catch up. Uh, That'll help us all just stay on the same page as we continue to move throughout this book. Uh, But before we dive into today's passage, let me just briefly review what we covered last week. Again, last week, one of the things we talked about is that the book of 1 Samuel, that at least chronologically in terms of Israel's history... That it takes place right after the book of Judges. And actually, many believe that these two books overlap just slightly in terms of a timeline. And and what I mean by that is that some have argued that most likely Samuel was born uh, during the end of Samson's life. And when you read the book of Judges, Samson is the, the last judge that is mentioned there. And so some think that as he was, you know, nearing the end of his life, little boy Samuel was being born. And actually, we saw last week that that Samson and Samuel do have quite a few things in common. For example, they're both born to barren mothers, uh, women who were unable to have children until the Lord uh, intervened. Uh, They both little children were dedicated from birth to be Nazarites, which again, a Nazarite was a way to uh, to set yourself apart for the Lord. There were certain restriction things that by being a Nazarite, you could not do. And so they had these similarities, but at the same time, there were some massive differences between them. And as we go through Samuel's life uh, today and the the next couple of weeks, those differences will begin to become obvious. But like I mentioned last week, we focused on uh, Samuel and his birth uh, to his barren mother, Hannah. And one of the things that we talked about is that uh, Hannah, out of her barrenness, out of the pain that, that came along with that, That she recognized her need and her dependency on the Lord. And so from that place of need and uh, desperation, she cried out in prayer. In fact, we're told in chapter 1 that that her prayer, the way that she described it is that she was pouring out her soul before the Lord. And in that we saw that she was not afraid to be honest and to be raw in her prayer before the Lord. To take her pain and her problems uh, to him in prayer. And, and one of the things I, I really tried to encourage last week was that if you and I, if we're going to make it in this Christian life, and, and not only make it, because that's not the goal, right? Like, the goal isn't to have, like, our clothes all tattered and we're crawling across the finish line. The goal is to have an abundant life. The goal is to walk in victory. But in order for us to do that, we're going to need to become men and women of prayer. And so that's what we focused on last week. And we saw that the Lord did, in fact, answer her prayer. And he blessed her with a son whom she named Samuel. Now, last week, we also began to get introduced to these uh, guys, one named Eli, who was the high priest. Um, We saw that he was the one when Hannah was praying, he assumed that she was drunk. Um, And and so I think I, I pointed out that I think even that, the fact that he just assumed that she was drunk, gives us a glimpse as to what the spiritual climate was like at this point in Israel's history. Uh, as well, we found out that this man named Eli had two sons who also served as priests, uh, one named Hophni and the other Phineas. And we're going to be learning in today's passage a lot more about this family. And so uh, I want to encourage you, if, if you brought a Bible, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Uh, if you don't have one, you can use one of our pew Bibles in front of you, and that's found on page 226. And we have a lot to cover uh, here this morning, and so uh, we're not going to put it on the screen again, so you need to be looking down if you want to follow along. And, and today, we're going to see kind of three movements that uh, throughout this story. First, we're going to see the worthless sons. Secondly, we'll see the complacent father. 
And then finally, we'll see the Lord's response. And then we'll finish our time together this morning by looking at three implications from today's passage. But before we dive in, let me just open us up with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that your word says that where two or three are gathered in your name, that you are in our midst. Thank you, Lord, that for those of us who are here in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And so we just pray that that he would uh, right now just attune our hearts to hear his truth, to hear your truth, to give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear. And so, uh, Lord, we invite that right now and we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Okay, so starting with the worthless sons, let's start reading the passage here in verse 12 of chapter 2. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priest and the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling, and with a three-pronged fork in his hand, he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Got to make sure we cover all of our dinnerware, I guess. (laughs) Uh, All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young people, or the young man, was very great, and the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Okay, so the, the, the story shifts away from uh, Hannah and her husband and, and Samuel back to Eli and his sons. And one of the first things we're told about them is that they are worthless. And that's an interesting word to, to describe them because if you remember back uh, to last week when, when Eli approached Hannah when he thought that she was drunk, she in response and, and defending herself says to him, no, do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. And it's the exact same Hebrew word that's used here now to describe his sons. And so the irony is that, no, Hannah's not worthless. In fact, it's Eli's sons who are worthless. And why are they worthless? Well, it tells us they're worthless because they did not know the Lord. They did not know the true God, Yahweh. And it's not that they didn't know about him because obviously they are a priest. Their job is to know about him. But what we're being told there is that they did not know him intimately. They did not know him relationally. You see, there was knowledge, but there was not relationship. And there's a massive difference between the two. And so because of that, because they did not know the Lord, their lives were full of sin. And you may not have caught it because uh, it's a little, you know, you have to slow down and, and study some of these things. But what the passage just told us is that these guys... These men who are serving as priests, the ones who are are to dedicate their lives to serving God and to serving others, they've actually been doing the opposite of that. Not only are they not serving God and others, but they're actually stealing from God and stealing from their fellow Israelites. Uh, look, Look back down at verse 13. It says, The custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest would come while the meat was boiling. And with a three pronged fork, he would stick it into the pan. And all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came. 
So what's going on is that in the book of Leviticus, God gave very specific rules for the priests for how they could share in their fellow Israelites' sacrifices. In other words, God provided a way in the law for the priest to be paid for their services or to be compensated. But what the law said was, is that the priest was entitled to a breast of meat and to the right thigh. But what these guys are doing is they're taking whatever they want, whatever this, you know, this big fork that they shove into the pan, whatever comes out, they're taking for themselves. But not only that, verse 15 and 16 shows us that that they actually steal the fat from the sacrifices, which again, according to the law, the fat was to be reserved to the Lord. It was his portion of the sacrifice. You see, the Israelites, when they would burn the fat, it was it was a way to offer a, a sacrifice and an offering to God. And yet these two priests are stealing it for themselves. And so not only are they stealing from their fellow Israelites, but they're stealing from God. And they're doing so in a, a, such a ridiculous way. I mean, uh, it tells us in verse 16 that they would actually threaten and bully these people. They, they said, we'll take it by force if you don't give it. And so they're basically acting like, a ma- you know, the mafia or something. I just envision guys in black cars and suits, you know, just bullying their way through and taking whatever they want. And so this is wrong. This is, in fact, sin. Look at verse 17. It says, thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. And so these men, again, who are supposed to be serving the people and serving the Lord are doing anything but that. But let's keep reading. The story will now shift back to Samuel. Look at verse 18. Samuel was ministering, ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. So we've just been told by the narrator of the story that Eli's sons are worthless. And now he shifts us back to Samuel and to his family. And what we're told is that Samuel wears a little ephod which was a priestly garment. And so he's kind of serving as a little uh, mini-me, you know, a little boy intern or something. And, and it tells us that Eli would, would uh, bless the mom and dad. And he would pray this prayer of blessing. And it's not super clear in the ESV text, but the other English translations uh, indicate that, that the, the blessing was that they would have more children to replace the one that they had dedicated to the Lord. And we see, in fact, in verse 21, that the Lord honors that. And in fact, he answers that prayer. And then the section uh, ends with this little line. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. And as we see from this story, not only is that telling us that he is growing physically, he's he's getting older, but but it's also, I think, telling us that he's growing spiritually as well. But let's keep moving because it's going to shift back to Eli and to his sons. Look at verse 22. Now, Eli was very old. And he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how he how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of their 
of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Now that should sound familiar because that's how Jesus is described as a little boy. And uh, so we're learning a little bit more about Samuel. So what we find out is that, again, these sons are wicked and they're worthless. And and one of the things we just found out just now is that they've been sleeping around with the women who work at the tabernacle. And in other words, as one commentator said, he said, Hophni and Phinehas are turning the tabernacle into a brothel. And so this is not good. This is uh, these are truly some worthless and wicked men. But that's not the only problem. I think that leads to the second movement that we see in the story, and that is the complacent father. You see, we're told in verse 22 that Eli knew about all of this. It had been reported to him. And we see that he tries to rebuke them. But the reality is, is that he was the high priest. He was the one who was in charge. And so as I was thinking about this this week, I just imagine, you know, just imagine for a moment that you're the manager of a store. And yet you find out that one of your employees is stealing from the store. Well, in that moment, you could strongly rebuke them. You could uh, warn them of the consequences. And if you did that, that would be very gracious. And in fact, that would be uh, more than what they deserved, right? Because what they actually deserve is to be fired and prosecuted. But let's say you do that. You just decide, all right, I'm gonna give them a chance. I'll rebuke them. I'll warn them. But then what would happen if you found out that they continued to steal? What would your responsibility be then? Well, to not fire them, I think to not prosecute them would actually, uh, I think you'd be committing an injustice yourself. You see, they're stealing from the company. And as a manager, you have a responsibility to protect the company's assets. And so to let someone keep stealing, I think, is an injustice. It's wrong. And, but the, the, this situation with the story is actually worse than that. These aren't just some random employees. These are the high priest's sons. So as a father, he, I believe he has an obligation to restrain and to discipline them. But not only that, the sin that they're committing isn't just against some stockholders, but it's against the Lord. It's against the Lord's people. They are de- they're depriving the people from worshiping God. And, and as we see that as well, they're sleeping with these poor uh, women who work at the tabernacle. And so, you know, no doubt it doesn't take much imagination to to uh, understand that they were probably abusing their spiritual authority in that place. And so honestly, given the situation, I believe a rebuke or a warning, uh, something more was needed than that. But let's keep on reading. What does the Lord do here? Verse 27. And there came a man of God to Eli, and he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of the offering of my people Israel. Therefore, oh, actually, let me stop there. Okay, so this is such a big deal uh, that God actually sends a person to confront Eli. And we're just simply told that this is a man of God. But what we see him do is he immediately begins to lay into Eli. He basically says, look, Eli, didn't God choose you and your tribe, Levi, out of all of the tribes in Israel to serve as priest? 
In other words, he's saying there, don't you understand how sacred and how much of a privilege this is to be a priest? Not just anyone gets to do this. And so, Eli, if that's true, if this really is a privilege, why then do you scorn or why do you disdain my sacrifices? Actually, the Hebrew word there where it says scorn actually means kick. So he's saying, why do you kick my sacrifices? So one commentary uh, said this, you could translate it as, Eli, I did all of this for you, yet in return, you've kicked me in the face. And so God is really upset here. I think he even accuses Eli, or he does accuse Eli of honoring his sons over the Lord. Which again is, I think, God accusing him of being complacent towards their sin and their wickedness. But that's not all. Verse 29 also seems to indicate that Eli himself was benefiting from his son's sin. It says this. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? You see, we know from chapter four, which we'll cover next week, that Eli was overweight. It actually says that when he dies, it, he falls back and he, you know, presumably breaks his neck or something. But it says there that he's old and that he was heavy. And so, again, what's I think being implied here is that not only was Eli not restraining his sons from their sin, but actually it appears he was benefiting from it. So that leads us to the third thing that we see in this passage, and that is the Lord's response. So what does the Lord do in light of all of this? Well, uh, let's pick it up in verse 30. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this is that, this is that shall come upon you, your two sons. Hophni and Phinehas shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to him to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of your priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Okay, so because of these men's wickedness and their sin, uh, and because of Eli's complacency and participation in it, what does the Lord do? What is his response? Well, first we see that through this man of God, he tells Eli this, look, I know that I promised that your house and your father's house would be the ones to serve me as priest. But now I'm saying this, that I will honor those who honor me and I will despise those who think lightly of me. You see, back in the book of Exodus, God had promised that the house of Aaron, also known as the tribe of Levi, that, that they would be the ones to serve as priests before the Lord. Well, Aaron had multiple sons, 
But for a long time, like right after Aaron, the, the priest, the main high priest would come out of the line of Eleazar, one of Aaron's sons. But what appears to have happened is that with Eli, they, they shifted from that branch over to an, uh, underneath another one of Aaron's sons. And so if you think of a family tree of Aaron at the top, and then you have Eliezer and a couple other sons. And so the priests were all kind of coming out of at least the high priest out of this line. But then with Eli, it shifts over here. And so what some think is that in verse 30, when it says, I promise that your house and the house of your father, that apparently earlier in Eli's life, God had told him that the priest would continue to come through his line, through this branch of the house of Aaron. But now the Lord is saying, no, no, Eli, you have been unfaithful. And then in verse 35, he says, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to all that is in my heart and my mind. Some think that this is partially fulfilled uh, later on in 2 Samuel when Solomon demotes a priest named Abathar who comes from Eli's line and instead points a guy named Zadok, which then returns the line back under Eleazar. Now, if you can't follow all that, I'm sorry. I know it's a little confusing, but the bottom line is this. The Lord has clearly rejected Eli and his house, but he's not done. He's not only going to reject them, he's going to judge them for their sin as well. He basically goes on to say this, Eli, no one from your family is going to have a long life anymore. In fact, they're going to become envious of, of the prosperity and the success that Israel will soon have. In other words, I think he's saying, uh, Eli, your family is going to miss out on the blessings of God. Later on in verse 36, he says that the, those who remain are going to be left hungry. Which if you remember back to uh, last week in Hannah's song, one of the things she sings is this, uh, chapter 2, verse 5. She says, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. So here I believe, you, you know, here's this, this family that's stealing food from the Lord, and, and they evidently are, are overweight and heavy, and yet the Lord's saying, now you're going to be hungry. People are going to be begging for bread. And so we already begin to see some of Hannah's song being fulfilled here in this chapter. And I heard one guy argue that, that actually you could take Hannah's song and kind of use it as a table of contents for the rest of the book of Samuel. And, and what they meant by that is if you pay attention, you'll begin to see her words fulfilled in the stories and in the lives of the people in this book. And we certainly see that verse uh, of uh, chapter 2, verse 5 fulfilled here. And so the, the man of God tells him that this will be the sign that all of that I'm saying will happen. And, and the sign's going to be that both your sons are going to die in the same day. And so we see that the Lord's response to these men is that he rejects them, but he also punishes and judges, judges them. But he's not done. The Lord doesn't just respond negatively to this situation. He also begins to respond positively. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering, that's a hard word, ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could no longer see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. So we're told right from the beginning here that the word of the Lord is rare in those days, that people aren't having visions from God. In other words, it's telling us that people aren't hearing from God, and that includes Eli, the high priest, the one who, of all people, should be. In fact, it tells us in verse 2 that his eyes are growing dim. 
And again, when we see details like that in the scriptures, oftentimes the the author or the narrator is trying to communicate something more than just that stated detail. Of course, maybe his eyes are growing dim, but I think it's also telling us that he's growing spiritually blind as well. And that'll become obvious as we keep on reading. I think the same is true about this detail about the lamp of God having not gone out yet. Of course, that's telling us what time of night it is because they would light a lamp and it would go throughout the night and would go out in the morning. But I think it's also telling us that there's still hope. The lamp of God has not gone out yet. God's not done with his people. Look look back down at verse 4. We'll continue on here. Then the Lord called Samuel and he said, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and he said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again Samuel. And Samuel arose and he went to Eli and he said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose, and he went to Eli, and he said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went, and he lay down in his place. And the Lord came, and he stood, calling at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from the beginning to end. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the door in the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and he said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that I told you. So Samuel told him everything and he had nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good. Okay, so another way that the Lord responds here to this situation going on in Shiloh is that he breaks the silence. Remember, again, it tells us there that the word of the Lord was rare. And yet here we have God come and it even says that he stands in the room and he speaks to Samuel. And he calls Samuel out three times and each time Samuel thinks that it's Eli and he runs back to him. And and finally, the third time, Eli begins to realize like, well, maybe this is the Lord. You see, again, he's going spiritually blind, but he's not totally there yet. And so he tells Samuel to go back and, to, and if the Lord calls his name again to say, speak for your servant hears. And so he goes back and he lies down and the Lord, it says, comes and stands and he calls out Samuel, Samuel. And so he repeats his name twice. And if, if you look through the scriptures, when that happens, when, when the Lord calls somebody na- somebody's name twice, it always happens to a significant person and it always happens at a pivotal moment and redemptive history. We see it in the life of Abraham and Jacob and even Moses. And so this is a really big deal. This is a significant moment in the history of the people of God. You see, what it means, I think, is that God is on the move. You know, as it says in Narnia, Aslan's on the move. God, he's up to something big here. 
And so he calls and he breaks the silence. And, and what he tells Samuel is he reiterates to him that, that he is rejected and is about to punish Eli in his house. And so Eli, the next morning, he makes Samuel tell him what he says. He basically threatens him into sharing the vision with him. And then afterward, he responds with, yep, that sounds like what God would say to me. You know, so I'm like, oh, that, yeah, that sounds right. You know, that sounds good. Which I, I think is a little crazy, right? I think this just highlights Eli's complacency and apathy. I think if I was in his shoes and this man of God had come and told me some stuff and now the Lord is speaking prophetically through this little boy and, and it's all of this judgment and things, I think I would have repented, you know? I think I would have torn my robes and shaved my head and put on ashes or whatever was needed, but he doesn't do that. He just says, okay, sounds good. Thanks, Samuel. And then the chapter ends this way in verse 19. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him. And he let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. So again, the Lord responds to Eli and his sons by rejecting and judging them. He then breaks the silence. And then we see he, uh, uh, he begins to raise up a leader for himself. He begins to raise up a prophet who will speak for him. It says in verse 20 that all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, which, which that saying Dan to Beersheba was just a way of saying the entire nation of Israel, that they all recognized that God was indeed speaking through Samuel. And this is really significant to the story of uh, the books, First and Second Samuel. And, and that's because this, the fact that they all recognized that, that this was indeed a prophet of God, it establishes and even shows that Samuel has the credentials to hear from God. And therefore, he has the right and the authority to anoint Israel's future king. And so that's going to be very significant as this story goes on, because if, if, if he didn't have that right, then when he goes to anoint David and reject Saul, people wouldn't have known that it truly was from the Lord. And yet, because it was recognized that Samuel was a man of God, that he was the prophet of God, you can now have confidence in his authority. And so that's how the story ends for today. But I want to just close our time with three implications from today's passage. And the first implication that I saw as I was reading through this is that if you despise God's sacrifice, there will be a severe consequence. If you remember back to the story when we read about Eli's sons, we were told two really important things about them. First, we were told in chapter 2, verse 12, that they didn't know the Lord. In other words, as I said earlier, they didn't have a relationship with him. And then in verse 17, we were told that their sins were very great, for they treated the offering or, or the sacrifice of the Lord with contempt. As well, in verse 29, we were told that Eli scorned the Lord's sacrifices. You see, in the Old Testament, God had pro provided a way for you to have your sins atoned for. In other words, he provided a way for you to have your sins taken away, to have forgiveness. And that was through animal sacrifice. And yet these men, they have scorned them. They have treated them with contempt or, or with disrespect. But the problem is this. To reject God's sacrifice is to reject God's means of atonement, to reject his means of forgiveness, and therefore, that, uh, that in doing that, you therefore reject relationship with God. 
We can't have a relationship with Him unless our sins are forgiven. But God's means of atonement today is no longer animal sacrifice, but rather it's faith in Jesus Christ. It's faith in the the Son of God who became to us the ultimate sacrifice. And so if you're here this morning and you don't yet know Jesus Christ, if you have not put your faith in Him, then I believe what we see is that uh, if you have not done that, if you've not accepted His means of atonement, then you are in serious risk of despising God's sacrifice for you. And therefore, like Eli and his sons, you are in jeopardy of being rejected and judged by God. You see, it says in the New Testament that that judgment of, of, of scorning the Lord's sacrifice is spending eternity separated from God. And the Bible calls that place hell. And I, I know we don't talk about it much. I know sometimes we're embarrassed of that theology and that doctrine. And yet that's what the Bible says. And it's real and it's awful. And so if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I just want to plead with you and beg you to come to him today. To stop scorning his atonement, to stop scorning his sacrifice, but rather embrace Jesus. You know, the most well-known verse in the Bible is John 3.16, which says this. uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So we see that God, out of his love, he gave, he provided a way for us to to not perish and to have life with him. Do you know what the next verse says? Uh, A lot of people don't. They really just know 16. but, But verse 17 is so significant as well. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You see, God's desire is not to condemn, but to save. And so I just, again, want to encourage you, if you have not yet done that, if you've not put your faith in him, you can do that today by simply confessing your sin, by by telling the Lord you're sorry and repenting and putting your trust and your faith in Jesus. And so that's the first implication we see from the passage. The, The second is this. God's people desperately need to hear God's voice. If you remember back to when we talked about judges, it ends with, with the following words. In those days, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And then we found out today that, that the word of the Lord was rare in these days. Now, there may have been multiple reasons as to why that was the case, but, but I believe one of the main reasons the word of the Lord was rare is because people were doing what was right in their own eyes. You see, God had clearly revealed his word and his will in uh, the law. And yet the people of God had rejected that. They had begun to worship false gods. They began to worship themselves even and doing what's right in their own eyes. In other words, they were living lives full of sin. And the reality, I believe, is this, that sin hinders us from hearing the voice of God. You see this all throughout the Bible. In fact, there's this really interesting passage in Amos that I just discovered recently. I'm sure I've read it before, but it, it hit me uh, it just struck me this time. And it talks about how through Amos, he, he talks about how there's a coming famine for the people of Israel. But the famine is not a famine for food, but rather it's a famine of the word of God. It's a famine of God speaking to his people. And the reason for the famine is because Israel is living lives full of sin. They're, they've committed idolatry. And so again, I believe that sin will hinder us from the voice of hearing the voice of God. And I believe that's true both when we open his word and read it. And I believe that's true when we, when we seek him through prayer. 
You see, if you're in Christ, if you're a believer, sin does not affect your union or your salvation in him, but it does affect your communion or your fellowship with Christ. So if you're living a life full of unconfessed sin, you are going to hinder hearing the voice of God. But what else do we learn from this passage? Well, I think one of the other things we see is that you and I, we have to position ourselves in order to hear his voice. You see, in chapter 3 and verse 2, we're told again that Eli's sight, his eyesight is growing dim. But then it also says this. It says, he is lying down in his own place. But then the next verse tells us about Samuel, that he was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. In other words, Samuel was positioning himself to be able to hear the voice of God. He was living in the presence. Now, we can't force God to speak, but we can position ourselves in such a way that if he does, we will be able to hear. You know, I've used this analogy in our fully mature class, but, but some have said this. They, you know, in the Christian life, don't be, uh, don't be a rower. You know how rowboats work. It's all up to you, and you're just out there doing it yourself. So don't do that. It doesn't work that way. But also don't be a floater. You know, don't go out there on your inner tube and just float down the river. But rather be a sailboater. I know uh, Durr over here went sailboating recently. When you go sailboating, you have a role to play. You have to work. You have to, you know, get everything up. And I don't know all the words and everything. But at the same time, you can't force the wind to blow. But you can position yourself in such a way that if the wind blows, you're going to be moved. And I believe the same is true when we position ourselves before the Lord and say, Lord, speak to me. I want to hear from you. And so practically, what does that look like? Well, I think it looks like a lot of things. And that would be probably a whole series. And we're not going to do that today. But let me just share a few thoughts. And I feel like this is a little bit of a journey the Lord's been taking me on of, of how to hear his voice. I think the first place it starts is just simply recognizing and acknowledging that you and I, if we're in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And do you get what that means? That means that God lives inside of you. Like Samuel, he had to go to the tabernacle to be near the presence of God. And yet you and I, we have the presence inside of us. And yet how many of us truly act and live as if that was true? You see, I think listening and hearing the voice of God looks a lot like waking up in the you don't have to do it in the morning. I think it looks a lot like every day picking this thing up. I think it looks like, Lord, I want to hear from you. Lord, speak to me. Holy Spirit, give me eyes to see. Give me ears to hear. As it says in Ephesians 1, enlighten the eyes of my heart. I want to hear from you. And I believe that if you do that, you will begin to position yourself to hear the voice of God. I thought of an example of this. There's been many in my life, but, but one that happened early on that was uh, fairly significant was... Um, I had become a believer at 19, and at around age 21, I fell in love with this girl named Faith. And, um, but she, her parents were like old school. Um, they grew up in this movement of churches and everything. And, and uh, so I knew that I would need to talk to, uh, to Dad and let Dad know what was going on and, and even ask permission to date. And so, long story short, there's this, I meet with her dad, and... Um, but before I met with him, I, I kind of got tipped off that maybe he wasn't very happy with me because he had found out that, you know, we, we were talking and we realized we both liked each other and he had wished that I had talked to him sooner and blah, 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 blah. And so I'm a little scared. My father-in-law is uh, a little intimidating for people who know him. Um, 
So that morning, I just woke up and I prayed, Lord, like, Lord, I need to hear from you. I need to know that you're in this, you know. And so at the time, I was doing the one-year Bible. And if you've ever done it, you uh, read a big section in the Old Testament and then a section in the New. And then you finish with a proverb. Well, I'd made it through the Old Testament, nothing. I'd made it through the New. And it's like, you know, I'm trying to make anything that will work, work, you know. And so then I get to Proverbs, and I'm like, well, I don't have much hope of God speaking out of Proverbs, which uh, is not true, but that's the way I felt at the time. And I read this little proverb, and it just says something like this. It says, let the father and mother who bore you be glad. And so I read that sentence, and then this, this thought popped into my mind, or this internal voice was, if her mom and dad aren't glad about this, if they're not happy, then you need to wait. And uh, so I'm like, okay, well, that doesn't sound good, you know, but, but it gave me some confidence. So I went that night and met with Faith's dad, and uh, he was not happy. He was not glad about it. He wanted us to wait. And, you know, at the time I was thinking, you know, I'm a man, you know, I'm like 20-some years old. Your daughter doesn't even live at your house. We don't need your permission and all of these things. And yet, because I felt like the Lord had, had, had spoken to me, I had the confidence to know that he was in it and that we should wait. And so we honored that. And it was so cool because, you know, about a month later or so, we were talking with them and, it, you know, kind of, we're just waiting and we're like, you know, mom, dad, what are you thinking? And it's like, oh yeah, that's fine. You guys can date. And we're like, wait, what? Like, you're, <laughs> you've been putting us through all this agony and everything. And, and so we started dating and uh, about six months uh, into dating, they took us out for dinner one night. They took us out to, you know, the fish market. It was a nice dinner. And, and really the whole night was just them affirming and telling us how happy they were that we were together. And I remember driving the next morning to work, and, and it was as if the Lord brought this passage back up to mind, and I realized, wait, this is being fulfilled. Her mom and dad are glad. They are happy. And so I, the next thought was, I'm going to marry Faith, you know? I had confidence that the Lord was in it and that he was leading. And so I believe, you know, again, as the people of God, we desperately need to hear his voice. As, as well, I think it looks like us just getting away somewhere quiet and, and just spending some time in prayer. You see, prayer is not just you talking to God, but, but it's you quieting yourself down and letting him talk to you. And again, there's a lot that we could talk about with that, but, but one of the things that, that I've been thinking about is that I think oftentimes uh, the voice of the Lord sounds a lot like spontaneous thoughts in our mind. I think it sounds like just random thoughts popping into your head. And you can, you can disagree with that. But, but one of the things I was thinking of is, is, have you ever been uh, setting some time aside to pray? And all of a sudden, someone's name pops into your mind. And you think, oh, I should pray for so-and-so. Has anyone ever had that happen? Okay, a few of you. Well, in that moment, there's really three options of why that popped into your mind. It could be you, and you just are, you know, you thought, oh, it just randomly popped in your mind. But I don't know if I'd give yourself that much credit. <laughs> It could be the enemy, right? The enemy could be doing that, but I don't think he wants us praying for people. And so the, the next option is that it could have been from the Holy Spirit, that he could have been prompting you to pray for that person. And so again, I, there's a lot more that goes into that, but, but I think when the, that happens, I think it's at least worth asking, is this the Lord? You know, exa example with that of praying for people. Well, how do you know it was God and not the enemy? Well, it didn't tell me, you know, the voice didn't tell me to kill them and steal their dog. And so I think I can have some confidence. You know, if it doesn't violate scripture, then, then I think you're okay. And that's a little bit of a silly example. But I think the point is this, that, that you and I, we need to position ourselves. We need to quiet our hearts down. We need to 
position ourselves to hear his voice. And then when we do, we need to follow through and to obey. Because again, to, to not obey the voice of God is to commit sin, which will then cause you to be hindered from hearing his voice. And one of the reasons I believe that this is so important for the people of God is that when we position ourselves to hear his voice, when we revere his word, when we do that, I believe we position ourselves for revival. See, I mean that both in your own heart and life. I believe when you say, Lord, I I take this seriously. I take that this is the word of God and I want to hear from you. When you do that, when you seek him in prayer, I believe you're going to have some renewal in your heart and life. But not only that, when the people of God do that collectively, when as a people we say, we want to hear from you, Lord. I believe when we do that, we position our church and our city for revival. You see, one of the things we learn about 1 Samuel is that this man, this, this boy who grows up to be a prophet of God, who, who heeds the voice of God and who obeys it, that he gets the privilege of ushering in a period of revival in Israel's history that was unlike anything before or after it. He gets to be the one to lay hands on David and anoint him as king. And so again, we desperately need to hear his voice. The last implication is just very simply this. Jesus was and is the faithful priest that was promised. You see, in chapter 2, verse 35, we read that, that God says this. He says, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to all that is in my heart and my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Now, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, many believe that was fulfilled, or at least partially fulfilled, with the priest Zadok, who replaced uh, Abathar. Some have said maybe that's talking about Samuel. Even though Samuel wasn't technically a priest from the house of Aaron, he did do priestly duties. But the reality is this, whether it could be talking about both of them. Because as we often see with the Lord's promises and declarations, there's an immediate fulfillment, but they also oftentimes point to a farther fulfillment. They point to something down the line, to an ultimate fulfillment. And I believe that this ultimate was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He was the true and faithful priest that we needed. Indeed, Jesus, in speaking of himself and John, he says, The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. In other words, I think Jesus is saying there, I do all that is in my father's heart and mind, which is what this faithful priest will do. We're told in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is the great high priest. It says in Hebrews 7 that, in Hebrews 7, that Jesus was, was not a priest from the tribe of Levi. And that's because it was a failed priesthood. In fact, in Hebrews 7, 23, it says, The former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood, in speaking of Jesus, permanently, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus became both priest and sacrifice. He is the faithful priest that was promised. He did all that was in his father's heart and mind. 
The Lord has established a sure house. He's going to go in and out forever because he lives forever. In Jesus, even Eli's question. Remember what he, he told his sons when he rebuked him? He said, if you uh, sin against man, God will mediate for you. But if you sin against God, who will mediate? In Jesus Christ, we have the answer. He will mediate the God-man, the faithful priest. And for that reason, he's the one that we look to. For that reason, he is the one that we worship. He alone is worthy. And so, let's pray. Father, God, we thank you that this story, yet again, like so, so much of the Bible, Lord, points to your faithfulness. Lord, it points to your goodness that even when your people reject you and walk away and, and scorn your sacrifices, Lord, you intervene. You break the silence. You break in and you raise up a, a faithful one for yourself. Lord, thank you that in Jesus, the faithful priest has come. That in Jesus, again, as I, as I said earlier, he has become both sacrifice and priest. And through him, we can have relationship with him and there, with you. And therefore, because of that, because of the Holy Spirit, we can now hear the voice of God. And so, Lord, I just pray for myself, for my friends, for this church, that we would become men and women who heed your word. Men and women who seek the voice of God and, and obey it when we hear it, Lord. Holy Spirit, would you help us? Would you come? I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.